Uh, we're talking again this morning about love, uh, but not the sort of love that we've been talking about this past week uh, as we celebrated Valentine's Day as a culture, but instead uh, the kind of love that's described in the Bible, which is very different. The scriptures are not anti-Valentine's Day. The scriptures are not anti-romantic love. There's a whole book in the Old Testament that's dedicated just to that. And yet the, the primary thrust throughout the scriptures, uh, when the scriptures talk about love in, across the 66 books, is really different than romantic love. And so uh, that sort of love will be uh, our focus again this morning, uh, described in various places in the scriptures as love God's being and character and intentions, the love that God has for people, the love that people are called to have for one another and toward God, and how people generally are supposed to live in community and reality together. Uh, those are the things in contrast to Valentine's Day love, which in so many ways is fleeting and limited uh, is what the scriptures talk about. Some of the definitions and descriptions that we've used over the last few weeks to help us understand what the scripture means are these. Unselfishly choosing for another's highest good, from C.S. Lewis. The seeking of another's positive good at one's own cost. In other words, sacrificial, from John Stott. And then from John Piper, he describes this biblical love as pursuing one's neighbor's happiness. Pursuing not so much one's own happiness, but one's neighbor's happiness. This is what the scriptures most often mean by love, uh, and this will be our subject this morning. We will dig into it as we again dig into a passage of scripture that's incredibly familiar to us, but worth another look in a different way. Uh, we will do that just uh, after we pray, though. Pray with me. God, we rest in your love. We enjoy your love. We are the beneficiaries of your love. You are love. Uh, help us to grasp anew and again that this morning, not just with our minds, but also with our hearts and our affections. Help us uh, as we read your word to have eyes that are good to see, ears that are good to hear, and hearts that are good, fertile, and receptive soil. I pray and ask that as my words are true to and consistent with your word, that they would be taken to heart. If my words in any way deviate from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, listen closely. Familiar words, so we tend to not listen as closely, maybe as ordinarily, uh, but these are the words of God, the Word of God. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jew Jew Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born, uh, they are born again. Uh, Nicodemus doesn't ask about being born again, but he's got these questions, and before he asks questions, Jesus interrupts and gets him on Jesus' track. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Reasonable. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. And he brings Nicodemus again back to the kingdom of God. 
unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again, or born anew, or born from above. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone up into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And we could spend hours and hours and hours literally on the nuances and facets drilling deep into lots of different parts of these 17 verses, which include what may be the best known verses in all of Scripture, maybe the most uh, best known, widely known single verse in all of the Bible. But we're going to focus in on just verses 16 and 17 this morning because of the limited time we have. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Jesus' interest expressed in verse 15 is that people may have eternal life in and through himself, Jesus. And Jesus states that this eternal life is available to or for everyone who believes. And John makes clear in verse 16 that God is the subject of all of this and the one who initiates and the central acting force. God, as Walter said in prayer, is the one who is in control, the one who takes initiative, the one who is driving all of this. And as we go through these two verses, we are reminded that God, who as we have said over the last few weeks and understood through the scriptures, is love, loved the world. And God gave his son Jesus, and then our focus goes to believing as the means of obtaining or receiving eternal life or as qualification for eternal life. And that's what John reiterates in verse 17. God is interested not in condemning, but in saving, in rescuing, and redeeming. And we go to, so often in our traditions and the way that we grew up, the word believing. That that's the key in this passage of Scripture. That we must believe in order for us to be saved. The crazy guy with the rainbow hair at football games and baseball games, John 3.16, had us thinking that we must believe or profess faith in order for us to be saved. 
believe, believe, believe. And that's a critical and important part of John 3.16. But in all of this, the question really is, who? Not who initiates in all of this. We know that to be God. But who are the beneficiaries of all of this? Who does the initiator love? And this is where we may get into incongruous territory on our journey. We read in verses 16 and 17 the word world four times. For God so loved the world. But do we believe that God loved and that God loves the whole world? We have been conditioned to think of the belief as I believe Jesus was sent for me that I might be saved. Do we believe that God so loved the whole world? Verses 16 and 17 offered a surprise, at least to the Jewish reader in the first century. The Jews, you remember, understood themselves as having God's primary attention. In all of the heavens where God dwelt, all around them where God dwelt, they lived in a Jewish, an Israel-centered universe. They were the center. And while they were able to understand God as being overall, they thought primarily as God being one who loved the Jews. They were his people. They had a covenant relationship with him. He had a covenant relationship with them. And he, their God, he was known as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is our God. And so fairly parochial in his universality, in his omnipotence, in his ubiquity, in his everywhere, focused on the Jews. And yet, Jesus says everyone, and John writes world, cosmos, over and over and over and over. And while biblical scholars and language scholars and various theologians do point out that there are different ways to understand the Greek word cosmos, according to the context, Jewish readers may assume that John is talking about their Jewish world. And some Presbyterian and Reformed Christians assume that Jesus is talking about the elect or the chosen among the world. It's fairly hard, though, to get around in one's exegetical work the plain and obvious meaning here that Jesus is talking about or that John is talking about everyone, everybody, the entire world. And the ramifications of this, or rather the ramifications of believing this, are significant. If God loves the world, all-inclusive, the whole big everybody world, then that means that God loves even little bitty you. And even little bitty me. Augustine wrote, God loves each of us as if there were only each of us. 
And there's more to it even than that. In the words of pastor, author, teacher, theologian, Sam Storms, notwithstanding what you have been told in the past or what you may feel in the present, when God thinks about you, feels for you, and sees you, he opens his mouth and sings with inexpressible joy. God's love for you so is so infinitely intense that he quite literally sings for joy. And we can see this consistently in the way that Jesus talks about his father and his father's great love for all people. Storms continues, the depth of his affection is such that mere words prove paltry and inadequate. So profoundly intimate is God's devotion to you that he bursts forth in sacred song. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about each and every one of you who is convinced that no matter how many times I tell you God loves you, still you imagine he must have someone else in mind. No, he has you in mind. Each one of us in the church, in the Christian family, in this room, me, you, God has with this infinitely great devotion us in mind. Do we get this? Do we get this? Are we on board? Okay. And if we understand that relentless, pursuing, waiting, passionate, devoted, generous, sacrificial love for us from God to be true, then there are other consequences that we must also agree with. We must also understand that as committed in love to you as God is, as committed in love to me as God is, he is just as committed in love to others and with the whole world in mind. Meaning that, God loves the unwelcoming, impatient, uncaring receptionist that you or I ran into in a medical office this week who seemed to feel that I was the problem, or that you were the problem. God loves the guy who was talking on his cell phone and not paying attention and so cut you off and forced you into an auto accident. God loves the neighbor who won't turn down their music or quiet their barking dog. God loves the coworker who never carries her own weight. God loves the guy who is able to work but prefers the benefits from the state and the government for unemployment and the kindness of his friends. God loves the self-indulgent multimillionaire who shares nothing with anyone. God loves the tech support person that you reach in the Philippines who for the life of her can't seem to understand you or you understand her. God loves the annoying cousin who holds zealously to his extreme political views and talks about such unceasingly. God loves the young man who was recruited far too young and almost against his will to fight with the Taliban. God loves the anonymous person who swindled your elderly mother out of her life savings through a con game over the phone one afternoon. God loves your God-denying friend who, whose life goal seems to be tripping up other people's faith. God loves the insurance salesman who simply didn't tell you the truth. God loves the spouse who cheated on her husband. God, without approving or condoning of any behavior, loves the father 
who beat and otherwise abused his children. Anne Lamott has written, you can safely say you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. (laughs) Put differently, when the God you worship only loves the people that you love, you have effectively remade God in your own image and made yourself made myself, made ourselves out to be God. God loves the man who broke into your house and stole your laptop so he could get one more hit of cocaine. God loves the young woman that I read about this week who was burned over 95% of her body because she was locked in a youth facility that burned in Central America and who never again will have the courage or the knowledge that she is loved to go out in public again. God loves the drunk and the prostitute and the addict, the average Joe and the normal Norma, Steph Curry and Selena Gomez, Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi. God loves the teenager who it seems is on track to throw away his life through petty crime and who now resides at the San Mateo County Youth Services Center. Just as God loves you and me passionately. So God loves all these people in just the same way because John tells us God so loved the world. So much that God gave his one and only son. Many of us grew up with the song Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And just as God loves passionately our children and is devoted to their well-being and their goodness and their happiness, God is equally devoted to the well-being and the happiness of the children of illegal immigrants and the children of Venezuela, and the children of North Korea, and the children of Saudi Arabia, and the children of Yemen, and the children of Bangladesh, and the children of Sudan, and the children of Egypt, and the children of Niger. Do we believe that? Dallas Willard reminds us that believing, according to the scriptures, is more than just nodding one's head, more than just saying yes or signing off on something. Rather, to believe in scripture is to actually trust something or trust someone and to live as if that thing is true. To trust someone is to live as if what they say is true with one's actions reflecting, of course, that belief because we trust it to be true. Do we believe what we have read in verses 16 and 17, that God loves the world? Do we see daily all of the people around us and in our lives and on the train and the street corners and in the mall and on TV and in the news as people who are part of that world just as much as we are, and so people whom God dearly loves and people for whom Christ died. And if so, do we love them? Do we wish them well? Do we have their good in mind? 
Do we selfishly choose for the other? Are we just as interested or more interested in our neighbor's happiness or our neighbor's children's happiness as we are in our own? Do we love people? Do we love the people God loves? If and as we do, there is in this obedience and this reality not only joy and freedom and peace and growth and eventually maturity, but also something more. Nicodemus came to the enigmatic rabbi at night because Nicodemus was curious and because he had spiritual and theological questions that were personal and were private and were individual which is why he came at night, eventually asking Jesus about God and about being born again and about new life and about heavenly things and eternal life. But the declaration of verses 16 and 17 ends up being an explanation of God's redemptive plan, not just for Nicodemus or just for the religious or just for Israel, but for the entire world. Nicodemus has a personal question, a theological question, something about his own faith. And Jesus answers with, this is about the world. And the two can't be separated. And so Nicodemus and you and I are invited into a reality or a kingdom in which everyone is loved. And that invitation is to and for xenophobes and homophobes, for foreigners and nationalists, for church members and non-church members, for the good and the bad, for the unworthy and the other unworthy. To be born again is to enter into a kingdom and to embrace a kingdom in which all people are loved, in which God loves the world. John 3.16 has so often over the course of the last 50 years been referred to and thought of as the gospel in a nutshell. What's the gospel? John 3.16. And that's very true. And it's important that we see this facet of it, who God loves. Brennan Manning uh, wrote uh, on the cover of your bulletin this morning, One of the mysteries of the gospel tradition is this strange attraction of Jesus to the unattractive. This strange desire for the undesirable. This strange love for the unlovely. There it is. I could chew on that and try to digest that all week long. And God will grow us as we do into his image and into his likeness and into his vision for the world, for humanity, for us. It is not enough for us to believe that Jesus died simply for me, though that's completely true. But to also understand and to be invited into and to step into this reality in which God loves everyone even the unlovely, even those who to whom, those who to us are unlovely. And as we enter into that kingdom, 
And as we understand this reality, then Jesus says, we are being born again. And then and there and in that reality, we get to experience through Jesus eternal life. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We confess, God, that we have failed to love in any number of ways. I have failed to love so many, most of the people around me. It is easier for us to judge and condemn than it is sometimes for us to be wholly devoted to the well-being of our neighbor or to the stranger in our midst. We confess these things knowing that you desire to heal and redeem and transform and awaken and grow up. So help us by your spirit and according to your word to do those things that we might have life today, tomorrow, and into the realm in which Helen has entered. Bring about your kingdom, God, in which neighbors and non-neighbors, people who are alike and people who are different, through the power of your spirit and the vision of Jesus, more and more love rather than hate, love rather than despise, love rather than disparage. Bring this about. We ask you to do it, and we pray with hope. In Jesus' name.